Well, I think, you know, education is a big part of that and helping people understand, you know, what, what does the hemp supply chain look like? What are all the different components, you know, not just genetics and cultivation and this really broad term of processing, right? Well, what does processing mean? Well, it, it's going to depend greatly on what you're trying to get as an end product. Um, so I think education is a really important part of it. Um, and, you know, I think to a certain extent, networking, right, in terms of people having the opportunity to get in the same room with people that are doing the same things that they're doing and share that knowledge. Hey guys, it's Mandy with the Global Hub Association. I wanted to say thank you very, very much for joining. I'm really excited to have you, to have an opportunity to meet so many people. Again, if you like our content and like what we're producing, please like, share, comment, subscribe. You'll meet so many amazing people with all of the interviews that we've done. They're available on our YouTube channel and on Patreon. Well, I'm really excited. I'm excited to have you. I'm excited to share what you guys are doing. I'm really excited to talk about um, something that's not talked about very often. And it's, you know, these pieces of the supply chain that are missed when we talk about harvesting. Everybody's excited or uh, I guess growing hemp in general. Everybody's excited to make the big win and forgets these really valuable pieces. So I welcome you. I'm excited for the intro. Do you mind giving a quick intro to who you are, what you guys do? Sure. Well, yeah, my name is Matthew Clark. I'm the compliance director with IEC Thermo. We manufacture and distribute large scale hemp drying equipment. Um, we have three different models currently that do between 3,000 and 15,000 pounds of wet uh, material per hour. So it is definitely some large scale equipment. And as you said, you know, we have definitely continued to see drying being one of the more underestimated components. Uh, of the hemp supply chain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's really, you can really see that when you still, you know, even 2020, we're seeing these numbers come out indicating that less than half of the hemp that's planted is actually making it out of the field. And a lot of that is because I don't think people have a good plan for how they're going to harvest at the scale that they're growing. And then from there actually get it stabilized. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Absolutely. hemp is yeah, I mean, it's what makes hemp so great also makes it really difficult to process and has a lot of unique characteristics that aren't shared by other parts of agriculture. Um, so when you get farmers that have experience with other kinds of crops, they don't really necessarily understand that they don't have a lot of time when it comes to hemp in terms of getting it dried and the moisture out of there so that they don't experience some kind of loss uh, from mold or other contaminants. Okay, so what are some of those things that are you know, difficult about processing hemp that aren't discussed? You know, and how did you guys get into this? You know, where did you guys come sure. from? How did you get into the hemp side of this? Well, yeah, so Walter Hawkins, who is our president and the engineer that designed our system, he's been drying things at an industrial scale for a really long time. Um, and so he has a lot of experience in huge projects like mining and uh, organic waste and different things. Um, and back in 2000, I think 14 or 15, he was actually approached by Jen Kana uh, to design a system for them. So that's kind of how we were brought into the hemp space originally. Um, and then after his uh, you know, exclusive agreement with them expired, he kind of took that technology he had developed and turned it into IEC Thermo. Um, and so he really, you know, 
as opposed to some of the other dragons that's out there, he designed a system with hemp very much in mind. Um, so at the time, the focus was pretty much entirely on cannabinoids. So we built a system that um, you know has a really low retention time, has low temperatures so that you can protect cannabinoids. And as we've <clears throat> found out over the last couple of years, terpenes also. Um, and so it's a two-stage system. It uses a lot of hot air, moved really fast. So material is in the dryer for less than two minutes. Um, the first stage is a flash dryer that, that hits it with a bigger blast of heat, but immediately starts moving it through a lot of ductwork. Um, so the temperature of the biomass never goes above 130 or 140 degrees if you're drying for cannabinoids. Um, so you avoid decarbing it. Um, and then the second stage is a fluid bed, which uh, kind of think of an air hockey table. It's got uh, opposing pressure in there. And so the material stays in that chamber until the rest of the moisture is removed, um, but it does it very gently. Um, and there's a couple of cyclone cycles within there. Um, so what you, that allows us to control temperatures really well. That allows us to, um, you know, consistently get material dry below 10%. And I think that's one of the things we've found with some of the other systems also that those, um, it's not always easy for them to get consistently down to those. Um, so I think that's, you know, um, we saw, you know, a huge uh, explosion in 2019 after the farm bill was passed and we placed a lot of dryers, um, but obviously there's been a lot of challenges on the CBD side. And so now, uh, you know, we certainly are still have great dryers for CBD, but one of the things I've been working on and, and a big part of the reason we joined the Global Hemp Association is to, get our hands around how material that goes through our dryer can also be used to supply herd, short fibers, grain, some of the other things that are now getting a lot more attention. Um, and like you said, you know, we were saying, um, what we see all the time is folks that they spend a lot of time selecting genetics, getting them planted and growing them. And come September, they realize like they don't have a plan for how they're going to harvest it, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, uh, over and over again, we see folks that think they're being pretty conservative and maybe plant less than 10 acres. Um, but after the first acre, they realize it's going it? slow. They're out of space if they're hang drying. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really, you know, we, we get a lot of those calls in the fall. Unfortunately for us, our equipment is is pretty large scale. So it's not something that you can put up in a month. Um, it takes a bit of time. So that's why we really think it's important to try to, you know, or what, you know, we call it being good stewards of the industry, but really encouraging people to have a plan for drying, regardless of what technology they're using, just mm -hmm. understanding that it doesn't do you any good to grow it if you can't get it stabilized. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. Well, I think that those are just, like you said, even the small plots at 10 or 15 acres, you know, it's a lot of manual work and, and the, the timelines that are put on them to test and harvest is, it, it, it becomes a problem, right? It, you know, that's when we risk. Well, yeah, very much. I mean, you know, unless you're really staggering your planting, if that first acre is ripe and ready to be taken down, all of it is. And that means it's ready right then. It's not ready for you to slowly harvest over the course of two weeks while you see powdery mildew and botrytis and other problems slowly take over. Um, and then, you know, you have all these variables like weather, um, you know, uh, 
I remember, you know, in 20, I guess, 2018, farmers in Oregon, they didn't get any rain until late October. Well, in 2019, it was pouring rain in September. And, you know, you have these kind of variables. And if you don't have a plan for how you're going to be able to get that acreage down really quickly, yeah. it really puts your whole operation at risk. And you've spent a lot of time growing something that, that can really go south really fast. Right. Okay. So I have a lot of questions, but when we were talking about the industrial side and the scale and the moisture involved, now that's the number one thing that I hear from the plastics industry is the level of moisture has to be consistent and it's a low to no moisture inside of that planet. You know, once. Yeah, I think around 3% is the number that I've heard in some of the meetings. And that's certainly lower than, you know, I think on the yeah. cannabinoid side, extractors are generally looking for below 10%, around 7% is good. Um, but yeah, for, you know, things like fiber and plastics and bioplastics, they need that kind of consistency. Um, and yeah, it, and it's volume. really good. I mean, they're going to volume. volume is massive on this plastic side, significantly larger than the CBD and cannabinoid side. Um, well, exactly. And I think that's, you know, another part of it is it's trying to f- transition from this idea that you're only growing it for CBD mm-hmm. when if you have the right equipment in the supply chain, you can still get great extraction material. Um, but you can also be producing the kind of base material for bioplastics, for herd, you know, herd, for animal bedding, for all these different things. Our system does require a chop material going in about a quarter inch, but on the backside with some good sorting equipment, which there's some great work being done there, you really can take that and sort that out into, you know, good extraction material, which is what the extractors really want. You know, their capacity, they don't, they don't want to process stalks and stems and leaves that doesn't have any, you know, cannabinoids in it. So you can give them the best material that they're looking for, but you can also get good clean herd, good clean short fibers, because even though we're looking for a quarter inch, those fibers are not a quarter inch. They're usually an inch or longer. They'll get pulled off through that process. Um, and then also because of our system and the way that it's gentle, we can we can dry grain, right? So we can, you know, get those all out. So part of that, you know, I see a lot of folks sort of giving up on the cannabinoid side, but I think it's, if you're only going to focus on the one output, I understand why it's really challenging, but if folks start to understand more about how they can get, get value out of the entire part of the plan. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of work to be done in figuring that out. But I think that's one of the things I'm excited about is that, you know, as the focus has gone away from just CBD and we see all this interest in solving these other problems, there's a lot more potential for this to become predictable for farmers. Um, I think there was, I don't remember the gentleman's name in one of the sessions we were talking, uh, Global Hemp Association meetings last week, just sort of talking about, you know, for a farmer to add another $100 per acre, that's that's a big deal to them. Mm-hmm. Because I run into a lot of folks that look at, you know, the price per ton of something like her, and they're like, yeah, that's not very much money. Well, when you add that on to a much larger operation and make it, you know, it, it makes the investment in the equipment all make a lot more sense. So it's exciting to see that people are starting to have those discussions. Um, but I'm sure, as you know, we're kind of at that chicken and an egg situation, right? Where we know more of what we need, but actually getting those facilities, getting the equipment out there is, is more of a challenge. Right. Um, okay. So when we talk about 
the myths, right? Or these um, stories, right? That we hear about large scale production or I, I don't even know myths, right? There's this big debate right now in the industry between large scale and small scale uh, production. And how do we bring it, especially on the industrial side forward or, or scale the CBD side, right? We've saw a lot of big companies come in, but weren't necessarily successful. And I know that there's a lot that plays into this. So what are some of those, I guess, what are some of the challenges that you've seen and what are some of the, I guess, things you guys have discovered that are maybe misunderstood? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the primary, you know, myth or, or misinformation out there is, is that using any kind of a, a mechanized drying system is going to automatically produce a low quality product. Mm -hmm. You know, everything is kind of um, compared to hang drying and taking, you know, four to six weeks to slowly cure a product that then, you know, if, if, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time in the adult use space. That's where I, I've learned a lot too. In the adult use cannabis or, okay. you know, yeah. uh, legal recreational okay. cannabis where, you know, we do dry everything that way mm -hmm. um, because the vast majority of what you're going to put out is a smokable flower product and that needs to be prepared in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is true of hemp, you know, um, what we try to tell people is you have to work backwards from what you're trying to produce and then mm -hmm. figure out the most efficient process to produce that. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> putting, you know, a lot of effort into something that's not, not going to give you a big return doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's why mechanized drying, mechanized harvesting, when you're talking about acres versus square mm -hmm. footage of canopy, it makes a big difference. And yes, you know, um, there's going to be some level of loss that happens in these processes, but it's all very comparable to what happens in hang drying or in other ways of harvesting. You know, especially if you're smart about how you do it and you handle it as much as possible when it's wet, when you're going to do the least amount of damage, lose the least amount of trichomes um, and are able to do it all really quickly. You know, in our system, if you're growing 10 acres, you can stabilize it in a day instead of six weeks. That's massive. That's that's game changing. I mean, right. And that's what and it's scalable, you know, and, what allows for scalability. Exactly. And we also understand that it's important to be able to, you know, not just say that we're protecting cannabinoids, but to be able to prove that. Right. So right. we have an ongoing project where we're collecting COA data that compares, you know, lab dried samples to samples dried through our to show folks that we do protect cannabinoids and we do protect a certain amount of terpenes if there's terpenes in there to begin with. So we want to be science-based and not just making a lot of claims about it. But if we can get folks to understand that you know, they're really not going to experience the kind of loss. You can still produce a quality product. Now, again, working backwards, if you're producing a craft hemp flower, you're still going to hang dry that. You're still going to cure it. You're still going to do it a certain way. But what I try to get folks to understand is you don't have to treat the whole harvest the same way, right? Go in there, take out your best craft flower, and then machine the rest of it because the extractors don't care <laughs> what it looks like. Right. And when it comes to herd fiber and those other things, the byproducts, that doesn't have anything to do with a drying and curing process. It's just wasted time and space. So it's really that scalability they talk about and getting folks to, you know, we've, we've looked a lot at like outdoor cannabis production and how people have done things on that scale. And then 
tried to apply it to hemp. And so we ended up with lots of giant Christmas tree style plants that are really, really, really difficult to harvest. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people are starting to learn that maybe that's not the best way to do things. Um, and, you know, just taking kind of methodologies that aren't really scalable, you know, yeah. you're talking about five to 10,000 square feet per acre to hang dry. Yeah. And then you need to have climate control for all that afterwards, you know, because if it doesn't matter how dry you get it, if you can't and labor, your labor and the labor, I mean, even the labor the, is intense this, that time of year. Right. Well, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot of money always flying around in these different industries and perceptions that people are making huge profits, but I'll tell you on the cannabis side, they aren't making that much money. And the number one reason is labor costs. Right. When you're still having to spend so much money on labor to produce it, so much money to dry it, to hand trim it, to do all of these things, to package it. You know, we're starting to see better equipment come along to make that more possible. But one thing I've learned, whether it's hemp or cannabis, it's all about your cost of production. And for folks that, you know, have to, to spend a lot and, and not everybody that farms is in, in an area where that labor is accessible. You know, we have guys in Colorado that are like, well, I can get lots of cheap farm labor. Okay, well, that's not necessarily the case in Illinois or some other places. So it needs to be thinking about how can we replace when possible, you know, the human inputs with more predictable machines that still give you a quality product. They just allow you to do it at a much larger scale. Right, right. So what other industries would you say, you know, because I always look at um, the grain industry, right? That there are things that are already happening in seed production or cleaning or drying or treatment of any of these other, you know, commodities that line have to be somewhat similar or line up with ours. What have you guys found in similarities and big differences? You know, like say to, yeah, to some of these other, uh, especially the big dryers that he's, you know, your CEO has already manufactured and put out. Yeah, well, so like you said, I mean, and I kind of figured this out pretty quickly, right? Agriculture has been happening in this country for a really long time, and they, they have figured out how to do a lot of things. So we really don't have to reinvent the wheel a lot. And as you referenced, like the seed sorting and seed cleaning, that's the same kind of equipment that will do great sorting of dried material. So, you know, um, some of the companies out there doing some of the better work in that sorting, their roots are in things like seed sorting and seed cleaning. And they're just taking the technologies, using air, pneumatics, you know, uh, brush and screen systems to apply that to hemp to try to get these different things out of there. Um, and so, you know, that's one thing I really believe, you know, our dryer is great it's even better if you have the right kind of sorting equipment right behind it, because that's going to allow you to just have that continuous process. And instead of getting one super sack of material, that's full of everything, you can get four sacks that each have a potential buyer. Right. Um, I think what we have seen and where some of the other folks of some of the other drying technologies that sort of struggle is it wasn't designed specifically with hemp in, in mind. It, it's something it was designed for another pur purpose and it's being applied to hemp. So you have, you know, big rotary dryers that that used to be asphalt dryers, <laughs> but they can control the temperature and it's a triple rotator bass. They can dry hemp in it, but it wasn't specifically designed for hemp. And so we, you know, or hops dryers or grain dryers that are being repurposed. 
they can do the job, but they weren't originally designed with hemp in mind. And mm-hmm. so like, you know, um, they have low temperatures, but they have really long batch times where if you're going to use a hemp, you know, a hops dryer, you're looking at 24 hour cycles. Mm-hmm. Ours is a continuous flow system where, you know, it is designed for you to be able to just keep pumping the material through. Um, so, you know, and even, you know, the belt dryers, which I think in a lot of ways have dominated because they have a pretty low price point. Um, you know, it's that amount of retention time that they have where it just takes a, a good amount of time to work its way through that system. And that definitely increases the possibility of decarbing or burning or some of the other issues people have faced. So yeah. that's, you know, while it's good that we can take a lot of experience in different processes from the past, not all of them are going to work great for him because of, you know, sort of the nature of what you're trying to protect. Right, right. Well, and it's different. I mean, even down to the way that we're processing it afterwards, right? It's just a, there's always one little thing, one little piece that's different or has been made to accommodate all of these others. Okay, so how did you, go ahead, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's sticky, right? Yeah. Hemp is, I mean, I've, I've seen hemp bring down a John Deere combine, right? With the wrong stripper head on it. Like, giant pieces of equipment that are incredibly powerful will just be brought to their knees by this plan um, because of those great processes. Um, So trying to figure out how to adapt some of those things so that they work best with the plan. And you've seen tons of innovation. I mean, every year there's new, even if some of that innovation is just don't take the bottom foot of the stock, right? Because it's so thick. And I think there's a lot more to come as we're starting to learn more about what the textile world is actually going to need, not just in terms of processing, but in the type of plant that we grow to process, right? It's a different plant than what cannabinoids are going to need. And I think, you know, we're starting to see more people, you know, get more interest in that, but that's going to then, you know, that's going to be another problem to solve. Okay. How do we take that material, get it dried properly at at the sizes that they need and that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a question about what got you into this? Like what brought you and what was your aha moment to say cannabis is, is where you want to be or is, you know, what was your aha moment? Yeah, no. So uh, in 2015, I was recruited to come move out to Washington to uh, help open a dispensary. And I mean, I had already been interested in cannabis. I was excited about legalization and what was going on. Um, But the once I got out there, I actually went to, a, a, it's now called the Cannabis Alliance. It had a different name back then, um, but it was a, a, you know, a trade organization. And once I was in that room with a hundred other professionals, it made me realize this is much more than just, you know, being around cannabis. This is a new industry with a lot of stuff going on. And it just made me realize like, well, I have, you know, past business skills, different things that apply to this that in ways that I had never thought of. And so over, you know, the course of that and kind of ending up going from a dispensary to helping manage operations and logistics at a cultivation operation that was then acquired by a bigger brand in Washington who had four cultivation operations and getting pulled into the administration of all that, it just made me realize like, having a passion for the plan is really important and being good at growing it is great. But if you don't have business skills or a business plan or understand that, you know, the guy that works at the spreadsheet all day is just as important as the guy that works in the garden all day. And that's kind of led me to just realize like, 
I, I, I mean, it's something that I'm passionate about and I want to see this plan continue to develop, but getting folks to bring just the regular business skills into the industry is, mm-hmm. you know, what we need a lot. And in some ways is what holds us back because a lot of those folks, and it's getting better. I think with the legalization of hemp, you've seen a lot more people come in. Now you're seeing a lot of, you know, the bigger brands, they're going after the people with, um, consumer packaged good experiences, like a lot of that kind of real thing. And a lot of those folks, sometimes it's still, you know, they're on the fence a little bit about it. Is this, is this going to last? Is this going to go away? No, it's not, (laughs) you know, it's not going anywhere and it's really needs folks uh, that. So, you know, I had done code compliance and safety and other things in prior jobs. And I just, it was a good set of skills for me to understand, you know, with traceability and track and trace and all these different rules that you're constantly trying to follow that, that it was a good fit for what I, you know, kind of already knew. Um, and then what, a guy that I had worked with in the, in the cannabis space was a sales guy there. He went to college with Walter who designed the system and was their primary sales guy. Mm-hmm. And he brought me into to IEC when there were only three employees and things were starting to go crazy. So I just kind of, plugged in there and helped, you know, where I could and, and have, we all wear a lot of hats there. So, you know, mm-hmm. I helped with a little bit of everything. Um, but it's been an amazing experience because I, I had already kind of had this roller coaster ride with cannabis and got mm-hmm. to see, you know, what it's like to run a dispensary, what it's like to harvest every 14 days and try to package all that and get it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, to a bigger extent. And then I was brought into the hemp side of things where, you know, it's exponentially larger, right? And so, and there's just a lot more problems that need to be figured out to stabilize the supply chain and all these things we're talking about. Um, so it, it's just another one of those things where it's like, well, this is all pretty cool, right? To get to be part of figuring out what this industry is going to be. You know, that's what I try to tell people. We can We can figure it out or somebody else will. So why not have us figure it out, whether it be on the regulatory side and trying to get those folks, many of whom used to be in charge of something else, right? And now they have hemp and cannabis on their plate and they don't know anything about it. You know, that's why they need folks that are passionate about it and are trying to be good stewards and and help move things forward. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, there was a time when I wasn't sure what I was going to spend the rest of my life doing. And now I know, you know, it's going to be being involved in this industry and trying to move things forward and trying to learn as much as I can about, uh, you know, every aspect that I can keep stored in my brain. It's crazy how much I've learned and how much I, the more I learn, the more I realize I have to learn. I mean, it just, and I think you said it well, there are so many problems or so many things that we still have to work out within this industry on the hemp side that just haven't been touched or are hardly addressed. Um, yeah. You know, I, I saw a great post today, you know, uh, somebody had a, an American flag made out of hemp and that's a great thing. But the reality is that there's a very small chance that that hemp was actually grown in the United States. Right. Because even though people get excited about textiles and paper and all these things, they don't understand that we don't have any of the supply chain in place to produce that stuff. And it's coming from Europe or China still. Right. But I think as we continue to move forward, that's that's definitely going to change. 
I think the hard part right now is kind of having the patience uh, to, to do yeah. that because it's it's not an easy task, right? I mean, it's difficult to get financing. It's, you know, we've, we had a lot of people that got burnt because of the way CBD went. And now to get somebody to finance a, a large piece of equipment or a big processing center, it, it's not so easy. But I really believe that we need to have some of these exist and show that they work to really kind of bring investment in. Once there's a, you know, a facility that, that can take in green hemp and turn it into all these different, yeah, turn it into all these different things, it's going to be a lot easier to get the money guys to come in and then bring those facilities all over the place, because that's what we need to make it work for farmers. They need to have predictability. They need to know that there's going to be a market for what they grow um, because they want to be farmers. They don't want to be a vertically integrated CBD company. And the ones that have tried Yeah. That's where I see a lot. You know, we really have seen a shift from individual farms wanting to make that investment in equipment, thinking that they were going to make a lot of money off of their CBD crop. That's, you know, now it's much more about finding cooperative groups that are interested in doing it or, you know, or vertically integrated entities who understand the need of having this. Um, but it's going to take some time, you know, as we kind of work this stuff out. Um, but I'm very encouraged by the discussions that are happening now where folks are really starting to get down to the details, right? If I can understand what are, what are the specs that they need for hempcrete? You know, what are the specs that they need for paper? What are the specs that they need for textiles? Then we can go about sourcing that material because we know people that grow we know people that drive we know the right you know a lot of folks across the supply chain that have different equipment it's just that way of figuring out what is that end product that you're trying to produce and what's it going to take you know with all these different elements um you know we figured out pretty early that we couldn't just be an equipment company that we kind of had to become experts in the entire supply chain because everything is so new for everybody. And, you know, so we've worked hard to try to different and develop partnerships across the supply chain so that we can kind of help folks, you know, from genetics to, you know, monitoring equipment, track and trace options, to you know, harvesting different specialized harvesters, and and then the post drying, sorting, and all that stuff, so that we can kind of help people understand the dryer isn't going to do everything. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? Um, it's going to take little, more. It's one piece, but it's it's a, one it's piece. A it's a very yeah, it's a really important piece because stabilization is is essential. If you get it dried and stored properly, that gives you a lot more time to do something with it than you know trying to to hang dry ten acres and and come up with a hundred thousand square feet of room, and then handle it a whole bunch after it's dry and brittle. You know what they often call dust in the hemp industry is really the money, right? At least yeah. on the CBD side. Yeah. So so yeah, it's it's pretty interesting to to see everybody try to figure that out but but like i said i'm very encouraged you know I, that's one of the things i love about the global hemp association is how many folks are coming at it from different angles trying to you know connect and bring together those solutions yeah yeah so if fits inside that box where who is that ideal prospect or client for you guys where what's your model or where are you guys really headed in the future with organizations or 
collaborative? Yeah, I mean, I think one of it is really the co-op model where maybe a group of farmers in a particular area. I mean, we certainly understand that it's not going to work for farmers to, to ship wet hemp more than 50 or 75 miles. Okay. Right. right. So it needs to be something that's fairly localized. Um, so co-ops are definitely part of that. We also talk more, you know, to some of the bigger uh, vertically integrated companies that want to have more control over bringing in to be able to contract. It's my dog, Lily. Um, bigger folks that want to be able to contract with farmers and guarantee that they're going to be able to help them harvest and dry that material. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's definitely some extraction. We're actually seeing, you know, international interest. We just got a job in Thailand. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely a lot of stuff going on and in, in not just in the States, but worldwide. Oh yeah. Um, so we're certainly looking at that and trying to figure out, um, cause yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter where you are, or what you're doing, you gotta have a plan for how you're gonna dry it. Yes. Well, and even if it's not for your product, the byproduct that you're getting rid of or selling or using, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the, no, I look at all of these, you know, these big hemp farms that have this extracted biomass and this waste and what's happening with that. And where's it going? And you know, that's just yeah. one piece that then could be sold into the industrial market. That's just not right. really being, I know it's being explored and talked about, but. Well, yeah, no, we, and we actually have a, a dryer that uh, an alcohol recovery dryer that you can put that spent biomass through. Um we, we sold a couple of those and honestly, the companies went belly up before we were able to deliver. Um, so, um, and that's another thing we're looking at, even on the cannabis side. I mean, that is something we're, we're looking at more putting together a smaller capacity dryer uh, with just a single stage that would, um, you know, serve the cannabis industry more um, where they have a lot of spent extraction material there. They could still be dried and then sorted out and used for other things. Sure. Um, so. So, yeah, it's really, you know, um, and, and, you know, we're also doing work outside of the camp space. You know, we have dryers that are great for distillery grains. You can use your hemp dryer in other parts of the year to dry things like alfalfa, organic waste. Um, there's a lot of applications in the dairy industry. We've seen huge, uh, really good numbers in terms of just uh, drying the cattle bedding where you get uh, better, better production, lower vet bills because they have clean medium that they're sleeping in. So we're really about having drier solutions um, and hemp is something like, we're good at. But. Seems like that would be really beneficial when we're talking about, um, well, and especially in like a co-op model, you know, even linking to an existing where they're using hemp as a rotation crop and now they're creating the animal bedding or, you know, cause that's less processing and it becomes a, I mean, a fast input and output, you know, with a, yeah, well, that's the thing, you know, I mean, we understand that the, you know, ROI on something that you're only going to use three or four weeks out of the year doesn't make as much sense. So we want folks to understand that, you know, you can make some modifications or use it in different yeah. ways. You know, we've made our systems so that they're GMP compatible. They're very easy to clean, lots of access points. So if you're going to use it for different processes throughout the year, you can certainly go back, clean it out. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, you can use it. So yeah, uh, organic waste, all, all different things. And that's, you know, so being, you know, multi-purpose, that's something that we want folks to know. You're not just getting a hemp dryer, you're getting something that can also be used for other, other drying. Yeah. Um, and if you're not trying to protect cannabinoids, the outputs can be a much larger, you know, 
our, our 3,000, 6,000 and 15,000 pound inputs are based on keeping those temperatures low to protect cannabinoids. But if you're just drying herd for bioplastics, you can multiply that. And, and it, it's interesting, you know, I mean, we talked a little bit about moisture earlier, but the difference between 85% moisture and 75% moisture is huge, right? Yeah. In the terms of how much energy it takes to dry and the capacity that it uses up in the dryer. Mm -hmm. So as you start to dry material that, that's already been dried to a certain extent, you can really increase those outputs and, and have an even more efficient operation. Awesome. That's, see, and this is the kind of stuff I'm, I'm really actually interested when we talk about volumes. What are you seeing for volume? Or maybe, I don't know if you know, but some of the demand to, to feed some of these industries. Like if we're talking about hempcrete or wood production or biofuels, plastics, now, what is yeah, that? I mean, I, I would say it's a little bit of an unknown, but I think it's a lot. It's certainly much larger than the cannabinoid side. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I was right. in a conference a while back and there was a gentleman from Mohawk Paper that the number he threw out was, you know, roughly 70,000 acres of production to feed a single pulp mill for paper. Right. So that's sure. substantially more. So I, I think, you know, that's something that we'll start to understand more as we start to get some more clarity on some of the regulations but i think that's where it will become a lot better of a, a rotational crop for farmers because the acres that they're going to need <coughs> excuse me to feed all out of these other processes is going to be a lot more substantial especially you know things like textiles right where the density is going to be a lot different a planting style is going to be a lot different but it's going to ultimately, you know, if we can move the textile industry back to the States because we can produce a lot of hemp here, I think that um, there's the potential for, for, you know, exponentially more acres than what you're seeing planted now. I mean, right now there's been a big contraction because of the way CBD has gone, you know, um, especially for those that were really focused on cannabinoids, I bet we'll see maybe half, you know, there was a big pullback last year. There'll be another big pullback this year. But I think that's partly because you still have people sitting on two-year-old biomass thinking that it has a lot of value. It doesn't, you know, the best thing we could do is, is crush it up and send it to plastics. Well, that's what I was going to say, you know, and, and, you know, all these bales that are sitting around that are construction material, maybe. Well, exactly. I mean, it still has a, a bit of value to it, but not as an extraction material, not as, you know, something that, and that's what I see a lot of people just kind of trying to hold onto this stuff, thinking that it's, it's worth something. And, and that's leading to, you know, this sort of uh, perception that there, there's no reason to grow it. Um, so, you know, that's another area where I think the industry has a lot of room to grow the way that, hemp has been regulated, you know, again, having come from the adult use space where we do a lot of quality testing, testing for a lot of different contaminants and a lot of different things. And then you've got hemp over here where it's just potency, right? Yeah. So there's, you know, as consumers get more educated and start to know what they're looking for, there's, there's a lot of not good stuff in uh, biomass, you know, and not just not because people intentionally did it, but because of drift, because of, you know, just the way that it's grown around all these other crops that are uh, have a lot of pesticides and things applied to them. And there's just kind of, you know, again, going back to myths and misbeliefs that I hear all the time. Oh, you don't need any fertilizer. Uh, 
that's not true. You don't you don't need any pest control or you don't need any pesticides if you're doing it right. I don't know anybody <laughs> that doesn't have an integrated pest management program for their And if they don't, animals. it's proving to be a problem. Yeah, you know, because, because is- it's Mm-hmm. Just like any other plant out there, just like the flowers, something's eating my flowers right now, right? Well, and so, we love it. Why wouldn't they? Yeah, would, exactly. So say, yeah, that the, those grasshoppers or bugs don't love those flowers when they start to bloom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do. And I mean, you know, again, I mean, adult use. There's not very many grows that don't have some sort of pest issue that they're dealing with, you know. Um, and so it's that idea that, you know, just because it's the cannabis plant or the hemp plant that everything's great. Uh, no, you know, and that's, I think what has kind of allowed some of the bad actors to really get ahead um, because there is this perception that, Oh, if you're involved in this industry, you must be a great person that would never do anything shady to try to make more money. Well, <laughs> that's unfortunately money just changes people. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, that's what I try to explain to folks, right? You just spent four hundred thousand dollars uh growing this crop and then you get a pestis positive pesticide test are you going to burn it all up and get rid of it right no right you're not you know it's just the reality of economics so so yeah there's um you know a lot of education that needs to happen and a lot of maturing that needs to happen same thing you know smokable hemp flour that's that's great if it's grown and produced as a smokable hemp product but taking you know stuff that was grown outside as biomass and then deciding because you can't sell it as biomass that you'll sell it as smokable hemp flour is probably not creating the safest hemp product that somebody's going to combust and put in their lungs right you know? so we have to have some responsibility in thinking about how we're doing these things um Okay, so I have I have a couple of questions. Um, we're almost out of time, but I want to. I'm not sure I understand fully these different processes for for harvesting and processing hemp from say a biofuels or a plastics to textiles. Where does the drying fit into each of these different types of processes? Right. So if I'm doing like a a dew redding or wet redding, you know where is the drying, say for textiles, compared to a uh, baled and sent off to somebody else to to corticate. Well, so, yeah, I mean, one of the big things that we learned from 2019 was that you're really better off using for large scale harvesting. You know, we originally were like any kind of large scale equipment will work, right? So if you have a forage or silage chopper, that would be fine. Or if you have a combine, that would be fine. Well, what we really found out is that silage choppers and forage choppers leave a lot of, they, they take the whole stem and chop it up. And then you end up with a lot of material in there that you don't really want to spend time drying. So we've really learned that, you know, the best practice is to use some kind of a modified combine where you're going to leave a lot of the stock in the field. Then you can ret that material, bale it and send it to decortication, but then take the rest of the material and send it through a dryer like ours. And then, um, you know, as I said, you're going to have a chopped material. So that's good that it goes through the combine. We pretty much as a standard part of our system now use a, a hammer mill 
feeding into the system just to kind of help create, uh, make sure the sizing is right, but it also kind of fluffs up the material as it goes into the dryer. Surface area is really important to how our drying system works to get have the most efficiency out of it. Um, but then once you come out of the backside of the dryer, you've got a material that then you can feed into a sorting system, or you can go straight into a super sack. I mean, that's what people had traditionally done. But then if you run it through sorting equipment, you can get flour as one of those streams and then get the herd uh, five short fibers, um, which I think are good for paper um, and grain, if you have grain in there. Um, there's also some really good harvesting equipment uh, that will do some of that sorting in the field. Um, so there's some attachments you can get for combines now that will, you know, sort the seed, the flower and, and some of the stem out and give you better material before it even goes into the dryer. Um, so that's kind of improved also. Um, but it's really, you know, about having some kind of a combine or modified combine for doing more than a couple of acres that's going to really allow you to to do that. And then, so, so you still are going to have, you know, those long fiber stems. That isn't what the textile people want, right? It's, it's great for things like rope and, you know, lots of long fibers and maybe insulation and things like that. But what I've been hearing a lot is, you know, the type of, of hemp that's going to eventually be made into, to oh. textiles is, you know, only going to be, it's not going to be grown to full maturity. It's only going to be like the size of a pencil. There's going to be a lot. And, and that's something, but I think a lot of those fibers end up being, I've heard, you know, 30 millimeters, 35 millimeters. So they're not real long fibers. So we haven't done any research yet in terms of you running fiber strains through. Um, but I, I but think that's because, a small part of the market, I mean, the plant, right. you know, the, the entire plant, we may see 20% fiber. You know, everything else is this herd and uh, right. yeah, well, that's where, you know, yeah. yeah, well, and that's where I think, you know, it's kind of the low hanging fruit right now, because because we require a chip, chop material, you're mm -hmm. ending up with a uh, herd that is in that quarter inch range that from what I'm finding, you know, that's what the hemp creek guys need. Mm -hmm. That's the perfect stuff for animal bedding. Um, and the stuff that can then be burned down into to bioplastics. So, yeah, and that's really, you know, that is, it's even if you're leaving the main stem in the field to send to defortication, the smaller limbs and all that is still going to produce a lot of herd. Um, and even yeah. from the fiber folks, they want mostly herd with a little bit of fiber, right? It's like 90% herd with 10% fiber. So the herd part is a, is a big part. And, and I think, you know, that that's the kind of um, stock material that it's going to come out of the stuff that you can also get cannabinoids out of um, because it, it's it's that harder, denser herd that that those folks need. And I think we'll learn a lot more about the building materials in the next year because of the price of lumber. Right. All of a sudden, everybody's really, really interested in learning about alternatives to that. And that's going to be a big boost. You know, I've, I've seen some cool articles where, you know, uh, what was it? The guys in Idaho, that got like a million dollars in crowdfunding on the first day. 24 hours so or something. That's yeah. Awesome. You know, that's, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah no, and I think our system does an excellent job of producing that herd as a byproduct of, of your regular harvest. And, and there is going to be a certain amount of short fiber that I think is great for like the insulation market. 
pet bedding again, you know, some of these different things that as much as we try to keep fiber out of the system, because it's, it's the most difficult thing to deal with, right? Those fibers, they find each other in the system. They create little rat's nests. It's the one thing you're always having to monitor and make sure you're getting cleaned out of there. Um, But that's, you know, again, another stream that I think we'll find out more. And then, like I say, grain, you know, with our system, because we have that fluid bed in there, we can run it at the temperatures to make sure that we get the drain, get the moisture out of the seed to get it to where they needed it. Because that's, I think, something that other systems struggle with because they have, you know, they either have to leave it in there a really long time to get it that low of moisture, which then causes other problems where we can get that low moisture low and still have very low retention times. Right. Okay. So uh, I'm really curious about the grain side. I think it's something we just don't talk about enough. In fact, I started another group um, to meet monthly, maybe even by, you know, twice a month, um, but bi-weekly for grain and, and the food side. Now, I think what we're going to start seeing on the protein and the food, it's going to be game changing. Yeah, no, I really think, I mean, I think that's what I sort of see as more of the future is not the the monocrop, but more of the, you know, dual crop or tri-crop where you're going to plant a genetic that has a lower amount of CBD, but also gives you grain and also gives you a certain amount of herd and these other things. Um, and that's what I'm kind of excited about. It's, and I think that's what's going to work best for more of the traditional farmers. Um you know, chasing high potency cannabinoid material just makes it harder to process. And you can look at like Canada, you know, we have a dryer up there. Those guys grow the taller strains that's around 5% CBD, but they take, you know, they harvest that separately. Then they wet the rest in the field. There's, you know, different ways and they're still able to get if they want to grow for grain. So I do think, you know, especially, um, as we are allowed to get a little more guidance and get that into animal feed, as you said, it's an amazing source of protein. I think it's going to eventually replace a lot of the pea protein and the other stuff that we see out there um, because you can really produce a lot of it. Um, But I think it goes, you know, so I do think we're going to get a lot more interest in that. And um, like I said, our system is, is a good match for that because we can dry that seed down to the moisture that they need. Um, There's a lot of adjustments allowed in the, in the system to be able to do that. And so it's, it's certainly um, something we think will be an important part of the future also. Okay. So what about Utah's market? Matt, what do we do in for Utah? <laughs> I keep getting asked this all the time. And I feel like now I'm at this spot where my backyard needs support, you know, and, yeah. and how do we present the opportunity? I mean, it's not even so much about support. Utah's thriving. And this is where I think it becomes more difficult as we are such a tech scene that some of this uh, manufacturing may not have the attention that it could potentially. Right. Where? How, yeah. how, do we, how do we bring this into Utah? How do we put some of these facilities in Utah? No, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think, you know, when I look at Utah, I think it's another a little bit of a chicken and an egg, right? Because Utah's such a rail hub, right? But we've only had one shipment of hemp on a rail so far. So we need to see an improvement of that where potentially, because that's where it's going to make a lot more sense for folks to maybe uh, send baled material across the country to be processed, right? If they can do it on rail, that's different than talking about trucking or any of the other options that are out there. So I think that's something that we should be looking at is, you know, how do we get a processing center and, and 
we've, you know, one of our first dryer sales, I think in 2015 or 2016 was here in Utah. They're right in the middle of Salt Lake, but they've kind of, they are trying to sell their dryer right now. <laughs> they've kind of given up on it. So um, it's, um, so I think, again, we, we, it would be a great place to try to, to put a processing center because, you know, we, we have all the, we're surrounded by a lot of other states that have production and could really and we're be a manufacturing a state. We are, we're yeah. a manufacturing and agriculture state, right? That's become tech. <laughs> right. No, it's right, true. But really, it's we've, true. we've got our, our freeways are massive. I just think there's great opportunity. Um, what we can do for our air quality by harvesting and growing hemp, I think is just, it would, it would be a game changer for our valley. And um, yeah, yeah, I'd be interested in collaborating and seeing what we can do to kind of even open the doors or or get a hold of some of the grant money that's available for our... Well, yeah, no, I think that's actually a really good point. And it's something we've been working on at IEC is trying to, I mean, we're in the middle of a campaign to really try to connect with different research entities that, you know, because there is a lot of, there's more and more USDA money out there and it really is supply chain based, right? Stabilizing the supply chain. Four um, billion so, dollars was just released. Yeah. Four billion dollars yeah. on four food supply chains and integration. Yeah. So, so I believe Utah State's doing a lot of research. Um, so that might be, a, you know, an avenue because you really need that research element to, to help you get these grants. Um, but, but yeah, no, I'd love to work with you on that because again, I mean, for, for this all to be sustainable long-term, it has to work for the farmers first, right? So we have to bring some predictability that when they grow a crop, they're going to have a place to sell it. Um, and for that, we need to have these processing centers. Um, so, so yeah, I think those grants might be a great way to do that. Um, and that's, you know, that's the thing, even, you know, in some of the other work I've done, I get really excited when I, when you realize that there, there are federal dollars available now to help support this industry, you know, to have gone from a place of total prohibition to, you know, grants being available to help people. Um, it is, uh, it's pretty exciting. It's game changing, really. And it's really what I think that we need in order to move the industry forward. Yeah, I mean, at one point I heard somebody mentioning that the, there might be the potential for them to start to do some block grants for equipment, right? That would be huge if that happened. Because as I mentioned earlier, financing is a real issue. You can find financing, but the rates are, are pretty unfavorable. Um, and so to have that kind of, you know, have somebody come in and back up the supply chain and, and make a partial investment is going to make it a lot easier to get these centers developed. How can the association help support in this? I mean, my mind is starting to spin in all of these connections and things like that, but you know, how do we, and I look at this as our community people buy both buyers and farmers need somewhere to go to know that if I grow, who, who can I take this to, to help me process it? Where do I, what's this next step? Right. So from your perspective, what is this, where does the community really step in or what do we need to do to help bridge that gap and move this along? Well, I think, you know, education is a big part of that and helping people understand, you know, what, what does the hemp supply chain look like? What are all the different components, you know, not just genetics and cultivation and this really broad term of processing, right? Well, what does processing mean? Well, it, it's going to depend greatly on what you're trying to get as an end product. Um, so I think education is a really important part of it. Um, 
and you know, I think to a certain extent, networking, right. In terms of people having the opportunity to get in the same room with people that are doing the same things that they're doing and share that knowledge. You know, there's, um, I think it's gotten better over time, but when I first got into all this, there was definitely a kind of a, uh, everybody's trying to keep their cards very close to their chest and not share a lot of information. But I figured out pretty quickly, if you actually get those guys in a room together, they're really happy to share that information um, and find out that everybody has basically the same set of problems and basically everybody's growing hemp. And nobody wants to see somebody else lose their entire investment. People, what I'm finding is people really are like, and that was what was so hard for me when I would walk around Salt Lake and I would walk from one building to the next and I would see the same things happening and and know right off the bat that they didn't work. Because I walked into one and he told me they were uninstalling their equipment. It doesn't work. Walk into the next one and they're installing the exact same equipment and they didn't know where to go to talk to each other. Right. And it was, it was that nobody wants to watch that. And if they do, they're not the business I want to be involved in anyway. But for the most part, I, I'm with you as people are eager to start sharing or more eager. And so I, I'd love to even you know sit and have those one-on-ones and, and on a regular basis. Um, but we yeah, it is. It's going to take a lot of collaboration for us yeah. to develop the supply chain. Totally. You know, and it's going to, you know, it's definitely going to take some folks that are willing to take risks, but we're, you know. We, we always want to share the information that we have to try to help people avoid making unnecessary risks and taking unnecessary losses. Because at this point, you know, there's probably somebody that, like you said, has had that piece of equipment. Did it work the way they thought it would? No. Or it did. Right. And they want to move right. forward. Right. So. Or, hey, instead of doing it in this order, do it in this order or start it on this temperature instead of this temperature. Um, right. Or, you know, here's talk to this guy, because if you put that equipment next to that equipment, then that's a game changer. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you're just trying to do it on its own, then you're going to have these issues. So I would love to offer and open this up to do a Q&A panel discussion around these topics. And let's throw in some of these processing pieces and drying be one of them. And let's yeah. open it up for. Um, so. I did in March, April, May, June, next month is farming again. And then um, August is some of farming and processing. So let's try to find a date where we can invite, you know, a hundred people, you know, on the farming side or open it up to farmers to really talk about some of these solutions and connect these dots. Yeah, I'd love to do that. That'd be great. Okay. Well, I'd love to. That's really where I feel like I'm finding the best um, traction in, you know, making some of these connections and then leaving it up to you guys to really do the outreach or make those, but I would love to have you. And I'd love to highlight what you guys are doing. So I think it's great. And lots of Thanks. Well, yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, we, we, um, it's important to get that message out there. Well, and just knowing who, like you said, who to talk to and spend, instead of spending your legwork meeting 50 people, let's try to bring them to one room and see if we can engage in some of those questions, but I'll let you go. It's your time to go shine. for. Yeah, no, yeah. I gotta get over there. I want to keep my appointment, but I appreciate you. And, uh, yeah.